Good morning, everybody. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59. There are some people in this room who love to study history. And there are other people in this room who hate to study history. But no matter where you fall on that spectrum from one end to the other, you can trick just about anybody into enjoying learning about history if you just start talking about war. I mean, think about it. What is the most interesting part of history to you? When you think of your favorite things that you have ever learned about history, my guess is that most people in this room would fall into either their favorite being the time of the Revolutionary War or World War II. Once I took a group of students from Queens to Washington, D.C. for a few days, and I took them at one point to the Smithsonian Museum of American History. And while we were there, I was trying to convince these students of the significance and the value and importance of American history. And Luke and Victoria were there, I believe, on that trip. And there was these two students in particular that were brothers that did not like to study history. They did not like that we were at the Smithsonian. There was just about anywhere in the world that they would have preferred to be. And so I began to speak to them about war. And if you've ever been to the museum there, you'll know that there's this massive mural. I think it's like 100 feet wide. And it's a giant mural on the wall of the Civil War. And I began to ask them questions about it and say, so hey, do you know which one of these sides, the, the gray or the blue side represents the north and which one represents the south. And one of the boys who was a junior in high school at the time said to me, the north and south of what? And I said, of our country. And his brother said, wait a minute, are you telling me that America fought America? War means conflict. War means struggle. Struggle for power, struggle for authority. It means that you're going to have to ask questions about good and evil and justice and freedom. And what we're going to discover in our text today is that you are daily taking part in a war. And if you do not realize that you are at war, then you will certainly fail. And more importantly, we are going to see the role that Jesus plays in your daily battles. So hear the word of the Lord and follow along in your own copy of scriptures from Isaiah chapter 59. It reads, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden your face, his face, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. 
Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his uprightness, his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Our God, we do desire today that it would be you who speaks and that you would cause our hearts to hear. Lord, we acknowledge at this time that there can be no lasting work of change in this room, in our lives, in our hearts, without the work of your Holy Spirit. So God, we pray that today in a unique way, in an impactful way, that you would work through the preaching of your word and through the foolishness of the preacher to perform your deeds of transformation. And God, we ask that this church would not be like the Israelites that we would be a beacon of righteousness standing firmly in the power of Jesus Christ, our King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. There are many ways that God has described himself in the Bible, and depending on the situation, you will find that the authors employ these different titles or descriptions. And God presents himself as things using metaphors to help him describe himself to us. For example, he is simultaneously our Father, and he is our healer, 
and our defender and our guide and our helper and our comforter and our counselor and our king. Now, just to be clear, all human titles that can be used for various people in your life, but he is the superlative version of each of these things. But there is one image that I think we often overlook, at least I know that I do, that is commonly utilized in the Bible. Before I tell you what it is, let me first take you back to a story from the Old Testament from the Exodus. We're going to jump in right after the Israelites have been set free from bondage to Pharaoh. and They've been released from Egypt and they have made their way to the coastline of the Red Sea. And it is there that they have set up camp. And then, while they are reveling and rejoicing in their freedom, they look up and what do they see but the entire army of Pharaoh coming down after them. At that moment, fear breaks out amongst them. It says that some of the Israelites immediately called out to God and that others turned to Moses and began to blame him for bringing them out there to die, saying, it would be better for us if we would have remained slaves in Egypt. At least there, there are graves. Out here, we're just going to die and our bodies will be in the desert. But of course, you know what happened. God told Moses to stretch out his hand over the Red Sea, and it parted, and the Israelites made their way through on dry ground. And then what took place? Well, this is the part we don't often focus on with the children in the classes downstairs. But after that, Pharaoh's army entered into the waters as well. And that is where God closed the waters over them and obliterated the most powerful military force in the world in a moment. It's at this point that Moses breaks out in song and he leads the people to declare the power and love of the Lord throughout chapter 15. It's actually the first song that's recorded in the Bible, and for now, I just want to read to you the opening lines of that song. Exodus 15, 1 through 3. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a man of war. He is a mighty warrior. This matters greatly for the passage that we are going to be considering today because this is the exact imagery that Isaiah is going to pick up on and draw upon for his prophecy today. So our time in Isaiah this morning is going to be framed through the following four points. The warrior's capability, the warrior's civilians, the warrior's clothes, and the warrior's covenant. Let's begin with the warrior's capability. The context of Isaiah 59 is really important in order to understand the meaning of this chapter. Remember that Isaiah was writing before the exile took place. He is writing to a people in Israel during a time of relative peace. They thought they were comfortable. They thought they were safe. They were living their lives as though they would continue on in prosperity forever. And he was promising them that there was going to be a violent enemy that would arise and would attack them. So this chapter is a prophetic glimpse looking forward to that day when the enemy would come and how the people of that day would respond. Just like when the Israelites were hemmed in against the Red Sea, in that day they would cry out to the Lord and they would look for help. And here is the answer the Lord gives. Verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. It 
that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Isn't that good news? That sounds like great news. God can hear their cries, and God has the power to save them. He is both fully aware and fully capable of making the changes they're asking for. This is the kind of verse that somebody grabs and they throw it into a Christian greeting card. However, in my Bible, that's not the end of the sentence. You'll notice there a semicolon and the important words that come after. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, it's not that God can't hear you. It's not that he can't help you. It's that he is intentionally ignoring you and intentionally refusing to help you. Now, to anyone here who thinks that that is unfair, please consider that this is the exact promise that God made to the people of Israel all the way back in Moses' day. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are 54 straight verses filled with curses that would come against the people of Israel if they failed to keep the covenant. And I'll let you read through that on your own for the most part. Famine and pestilence and poverty, and that's just the beginning. The Lord promised starvation that would be so severe that he says even the most tender of fathers and most tender of mothers are going to be fighting over who gets to eat their children. It is brutal, the curses that the Lord promised against those who turn away from him. He speaks of their cannibalistic way toward their own offspring, and that is not even the worst of it. The greatest threat that he presented to them is that he himself would depart, and that he would have nothing to do with them, that he would not hear them. Consider the final threat that God would refuse to defend them. Let me read to you from the end of that passage of curses. He says, And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at the evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. Now you may have noticed that some of the language employed there is intentionally paralleled to the curses that we just read in our passage today in Isaiah 59. The Lord is a warrior, and the Lord is mighty in battle. But when the time came for the Israelites to go into exile, the best way that he could help them was not to fight for them, but to allow them to experience the suffering that they had promised, been promised so that their hearts would indeed return to him. Our second point this morning is the warrior's civilians. Now we're going to focus in on exactly what was going on in the hearts and in the lives of those people that the Lord is refusing to defend. Let's take a closer look at the specific sins that God is calling out, and we find this extensive list in verses 3 through 8. He says, For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Here we speak of the violence of these people. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. 
if you'll remember back to Isaiah 6, when he goes into the throne room of God, what he says is, I speak, I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and I myself have unclean lips. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their work Works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Now, the main two metaphors that he's utilizing here and kind of weave throughout this passage are of spiderwebs and snake eggs. The spiderweb represents traps that these people are setting for other people. They're weaving intricate plans so that people will fall into them. They're seeking to find ways to enrich themselves off the back of others unjustly. And not only that, he also speaks of these spiderwebs in ways of saying that no matter how much Wealth that these schemes produce, they are not going to satisfy you. These webs are not good for making clothing, he says. In other words, no matter how hard you try, this will not ultimately make you feel what you are expecting to feel. They are not going to result in genuine life, but genuine death. This concept is similar to the metaphor of the snake eggs that he is using, Uh, Once I was in an airport in England, and while I was there, I kind of got stuck because of some canceled flights, and I was in between countries. I was on my way to Germany, and I was coming from the United States, so I had no British pounds, and I had no way to purchase food. And so while I was waiting there, there were some other people that were likewise in a similar position, and I befriended these three elderly women, and these three elderly women took pity on me, and one of them took out of her purse a bag of hard-boiled eggs, and she handed me three of them, knowing that I was very hungry, and expected that to be a very helpful thing for me. Uh, I did not eat them. Uh, Maybe it was a repressed memory of my parents telling me not to eat food from strangers. Maybe it's just because I had no idea how long these eggs had been in her purse. I kind of have a policy, I do not eat purse eggs. But imagine for a moment if I were to have gone around the corner and sat down and I were to crack open one of those eggs, anticipating some kind of sustenance, and instead out popped a baby snake, which bit me in the face. That is the imagery that is being used here. He says, you you go to breakfast, you pick up one of these eggs, and and you try to break it open, and what comes out? Death comes out of it. Well, the big point that he's making is not just what's in them, But he is talking about where these eggs come from. He speaks about them as though they are hens laying these eggs. But their offspring indicate their identity. Their offspring reveals who they really are. And their offspring, in this case, is their works. John the Baptist and Jesus would use very similar language by calling the religious hypocrites of their day a brood of vipers. And that their offspring, their works, revealed that they indeed were children of hell, children of Satan, a brood of vipers, as they would be called by the Messiah. 
Now, this is the typical state of the majority of Israel in those days. But don't be too hasty to assume that these sins are exclusive to those in Isaiah's day or even to those in John the Baptist or Jesus' day. If you are paying close attention to the New Testament reading this morning, you would notice that several of these verses in our text today, in Isaiah 59, were used all the way forward in Romans chapter 3. There we find Paul making a sweeping statement of condemnation against every single person in the world. Francesco did a great job of reading that for us this morning. And if you were paying close attention, you need to understand what Paul is doing. He has already gone after the Jews, and he has already gone after the Gentiles. And he basically says, look, if you think that you don't fall into any of these categories, if you don't think that you are guilty yet, just you wait. And then he goes on a tirade by drawing little pieces from all over the Old Testament, including our chapter today, to remind them that there is no one good, no, not one, including you. And that, yes, does include you and me. And that concludes with his revelation that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether you are the oldest person in the room or you are the youngest person in the room, whether you are the most moral person in the room or the most immoral person in the room, whether you have spent your life in absolute debauchery or you have spent your life in pious self-righteousness, it doesn't matter. You are a sinner in need of the grace of God. And notice that Isaiah actually jumps into chapter 59 in a unique and very interesting way. In verse 9, he begins speaking not about you, speaking to the people of Israel, but about us, including himself in the text. Here he is not just pointing fingers and saying, why do you not repent? Why are you not turning? Every time forward, he begins to use the word us, including himself in the people who need the grace of God. In verses 9 through 15, we see that Isaiah speaks about the negative results of sin that it had on all of them. Let's walk through that portion with some running commentary. It says, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope Like those who have no eyes, we stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. This is a miserable image. Have you ever been in a dark room, a very dark place, and you're trying to find the light switch, and you keep banging your fingers on things and tripping over things? That's why God created your toes, is to find furniture in the dark. We stumble at noon as though it was twilight. It's not like there's no righteousness to be seen but we can't find it. It's not like the lights are off, but we're still so blinded that it's like we are in the dark. And he says that it's like everyone else has full vigor, but we are like dead men. We have no strength to find righteousness. Our search leaves us exhausted. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. There are few things in the world that display their hunger more ferociously than a bear. I don't know if you've ever seen a bear. Those things are monsters. And he says, that's what we are like. We are hungry, and we are letting each other know it. We are starving, and we do not stop making noise. All we want is this to come back to us, but we cannot find it. And why not? Well, that we will see. Verse 12. 
For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Look, they want a cultural change. They want all this evil to stop. They want the lying and the cheating and the wicked courts and the the injustice to cease, but they don't want to go to the place where that can be changed. Isaiah explains the reason that the Lord is not answering them right here. The statement about multiplication of sins is the point, and he is using intentional language here, not of mathematics, but of offspring. That's what that word multiplication means. In particular, animal offspring. Animals often have many children at a time. There are some animals that lay a lot of eggs, like sea turtles, and you'll, if you've ever seen those videos of like the sea turtles breaking out of their eggs and all trying to rush to the sea before they're eaten by the seagulls. They lay a lot of eggs. According to National Geographic, the animal that lays the most eggs is a fish called the ocean sunfish that lays 300 million eggs every year. That's the kind of exponential growth that is in view here. Even though the people say they desire justice in their society, all they really want is a cultural fix, but they're not willing to let go of their sin. They desire their sin more than they desire a just society. As my former pastor would say, sin always promises what it can't give you, and it always takes you farther than you want to go, and it always keeps you longer than you want to stay there. And that is what they are experiencing. So if you are caught in any kind of sin, what are you to do? You must put it to death. It will not remain as an isolated part of your life any more than if you had gangrene, it would remain an isolated part of your hand. Sin is infectious and it is destructive. And if you let it linger in your life, it will have a result similar to what they are experiencing, where they look around and say, this has destroyed far more than I wanted it to. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Isaiah describes the warrior's civilians as a people who have experienced the decay that sin has on society. It has reached the point where anyone who desires to depart from evil is kind of like a small lamb that accidentally fell into a a bee's hive, and now it's covered in honey. And then it begins walking away, and it looks to its left, and what's there? A pack of wolves. And what's to its right? A a, a bunch of lions. And this lamb, covered in honey, is now in the desperate throes of being incapable of survival. It's like they are running towards what they desire, towards righteousness, but all they see around them are enemies. That's what it's like for those who desire to stop sinning in these ways. Does this not seem relevant to you? Are there not aspects of our society that reflect this very thing? If you speak up for what is right or even keep silent about what is right, then what happens? You get canceled. That's what happens in our society today. That is not new. This has been happening since the days of Isaiah to which he was prophesying. Which begins our third point, the warrior's clothes. Now we're going to pick up right here in the middle of verse 15. And this is the hinge upon which the entire chapter swings. And in fact, this is the hinge upon which all of history swings. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. 
he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. If you are not currently looking at the passage in your own copy of scripture, I encourage you to do so. Open your Bible, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16, and look at that word, that phrase, his own arm brought salvation. And if you are comfortable with marking in your Bibles, I want you to underline or circle or highlight or whatever you need to do to make sure you will see that phrase, his own arm brought salvation. And what you are seeing here is this term, the arm of the Lord, is not just a reference to God's strength, It is a reference to a person. Moving forward, every time this section uses the word he, it is referring to the arm of the Lord that would bring salvation, who would be upheld by his own righteousness. Do you see that? All of these people are looking outside of themselves for where they might find righteousness. But he says there is one coming, a person, the arm of the Lord, and he will be upheld by his own righteousness. Verse 17 He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Does this sound familiar to you? The full armor of God that we find in Ephesians is drawn in part from this passage. But what I want you to notice is that the armor of God commands you to wear, that commands you to wear these things in that passage in Ephesians, is not new armor. It is used armor. It has been worn before you. The Lord is a warrior, and this is his array for battle. Jesus came to live among us as one of us, and he dressed for war. And when Satan came to tempt him in the wilderness, it was that breastplate of righteousness that he wore about his chest. And that armor that Jesus wore, he now offers to all who trust in him. Isn't that great? We get the hand-me-downs of the king. We get to wear his own armor. He has given that to us so that we might do what? According to Ephesians, we are to stand firm. The war manual, The Art of War, written by Sun Tzu, he once said, victorious warriors win first and then go to war. Of course, what he was speaking about simply was supply lines and battle tactics, but the reality of your Christian life is found In this truth, Jesus won the war at Calvary. He defeated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death. And we are not called to take the battlefield. We're simply called to stand firm. Victorious Christians win first, and then we go to war. And by this I mean that we stand firm in the completed work and the victorious work of Jesus Christ, and then we live our lives. We fight sin based upon the fact that Jesus has already defeated the penalty of our sin, And he has given us the power to conquer sin. We reject temptation because we base that on the reality Jesus has saved us and given us the ability to live free and righteous lives. Uh, Let me just provide you with an extreme hypothetical. This will not happen to you, but just imagine for a moment that it did. Imagine for a moment that Satan approached you like he did to Jesus in the wilderness. Imagine that he approached you at a time of great physical weakness, Maybe not to the extent where Jesus had fasted for 40 days, which is probably the extreme physical limit you can go without food. But imagine he approaches you at a time of weakness, and he begins to tempt you with the greatest things that you have ever desired in your life. What would you do? Well, if you're a Christian, you should be able to look him right in the eye, 
to look that temptation right in the eye and say, my king, Jesus, he already defeated you. He wore this armor, when he, and when he did it, he has given me this armor now to wear, so you have no power against me. I have seen this armor at work. I have seen my king at work. What can you do to me? Christian, you never have to sin again. That is good news. You never have to sin again. Christ won the battle. So now you have the power to say yes to Jesus and no to self every time. Do I believe that you will do it? Do I believe that I will do that and live in sinless perfection forever? I don't. I don't believe that. But I do know that we have the ability to do so. You are a new creation. And Romans 8.37 describes you this way. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. The art of war for the Christian is to let the mighty warrior fight on your behalf. It's to join the good and victorious team. And notice that in the rest of this section, he promises that those who don't will experience great judgment from the mighty warrior. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. There is a day coming when Christ will return, and when he does, he's going to bring comfort and consolation to all of his people who have suffered. But he will also bring ruin and desolation to his enemies. We read about this warrior king and his return in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. As we read this, consider the Lord is a warrior, mighty in battle. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Many years ago, I heard a sermon by Peter Nicotra, who was recently here on Wednesday night, a couple of weeks ago, about this winepress of fury. It is one of the most terrifying things that God can say that he is going to crush the people like a wine press, like throwing grapes into a bucket and then stomping on them until there is nothing left but juice. How is it that one can be sure that they are on the right side of the warrior king? How can we be certain that we will not be tread in the wine press of his fury? Point number four, the warrior's covenant. Verse 20 says, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now notice the fact, the very fact that it uses the word redeemer. It is so important. Because that indicates that the warrior is coming for people who need to be redeemed. He is not coming for people who are already good or already perfect. He is coming for people who need to be saved. And it is to them that he brings salvation. And in particular, who is it that he will save? All those who turn from their transgression. 
And it's here that we get just a small foretaste of the new covenant that will be established at the cross by the blood of Christ. It's like he is just pulling back one tiny corner and giving you a glimpse of what will happen through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Unlike the covenant that God made with Moses that would conclude with generations of people who rejected God and who rejected God's word, every single person who is part of the new covenant will be part of his kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. And our spiritual children will always have full claim to that same promise. So what is this chapter promising us? It's promising that the Lord is a warrior who is eventually going to come and establish a new covenant, who is going to come and redeem his people, who is going to come and dress for battle, and he is going to fight a war on behalf of his unworthy citizens, and that he is going to stand in their place in single combat. Like David fought Goliath, he will fight his great enemies for his people. And brothers and sisters, this chapter is about Christ. This chapter is about the gospel. This chapter is about how Jesus has won the war against sin and about how we can be redeemed if we will repent and believe in him. And it is an instructional manual about how we can be Christians in complete armor, fighting the battles against temptation in his strength, in his strength alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so immensely grateful that you came to redeem those that needed redemption, for that describes every one of us. Uh, We thank you, God, that Jesus came and he wore the full armor of God, completely arrayed in battle garb, and that he went to the cross and he defeated sin and death and Satan on our behalf. And I thank you, God, that now we who trust in him and follow him, that we have the right to wear his armor, that we can put on the full armor of God so that we can stand in the day of the evil one. I thank you, God, that we can wear that armor and that we can defend ourselves and stand firm in his strength, in his power, that we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Lord, we thank you that he did love us. We thank you that he loved us to the extent that he died for us. And I pray, God, that if there is anyone in this room who does not yet trust in him, who has not yet been redeemed by him, who has not yet found salvation and righteousness in him, that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ today and that they would be saved. Father, we delight in you. We thank you for this wonderful word that you have presented to us in Isaiah 59. We pray that we would go and live based upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.